Why did Apple get into maps in the first place? That question has been on my mind for years. Seriously, it might sound like a dumb question at first, but the reason I wondered about that is because the main competitor, Google Maps, is just Google search, but on a map. Apple, on the other hand, is notorious for not going into the ad business, but rather charging high prices upfront. This is why I'm so excited about today's conversation with James Killick. James started working for Apple in 2013, right after the launch of Apple Maps, which was actually pretty disastrous, by the way, and worked there for nine years. After decades of working in the mapping industry, he was the perfect person to answer this seemingly simple question. Why did Apple get into maps in the first place? Apple actually initially got into maps because of photos. This conversation is pretty much a whole history of Apple Maps. But before we get into how Apple Maps started, we went all the way back to 1985 when James started working on in-vehicle car navigation devices. Yes, in 1985, and all the steps along the way that led to the current map apps we have today. Today's episode is sponsored by Felt. Felt is a web tool that allows you to make collaborative maps. If you're familiar with how Google Docs or Notion work, you know about real-time collaborative documents. That's exactly what Felt is doing, but for maps. You can annotate, draw, comment directly on the map, and then send a link to anyone you wish to collaborate with. They also have invested in building their Upload Anything tool, a simple drag and drop from any spatial formats like shapefile, geodason, geotiffs, but also regular files like CSV or JPEGs. This effectively turns maps into a collaborative medium. They've also recently announced their QGIS plugin, so if you're used to working in QGIS, you can now easily import your projects into Felt and turn a QGIS project into a collaborative, easily shareable online project. If you want to give collaborative maps a try, head over to the link in the description to try out Felt. I'll also link to their YouTube channel that has constant walkthroughs of their most recent features. I don't know if you know, I start these the same way every single time. I ask the same question to everybody that comes on. I ask them to describe themselves. So I'm curious, how would you describe yourself? I guess I'm an accidental mapping nerd. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got involved in the, in the mapping industry purely by accident. Um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from uh, the United States. I'm originally from, uh, from England, born in London, grew up in England, went to college in England. And um, prior to that, I'd uh, made a trip out to California to visit my brother who was living there at the time and quickly realized that California was a pretty cool place to live. And so I went back home and got a degree and when I, an engineering degree in computer science. And when I came, when I finished that, I came back out to California and uh, I was on a tourist visa. I had about 300 bucks in my pocket. And I landed in Silicon Valley, and it was a case of beggars can't be choosers. So I created a resume and dealt it out to anyone who would, you know, have the courtesy of listening to me. And there were two opportunities for me. One was a a small pre-IPO, rather boring relational database management software company based in Redwood Shores, California. Uh, they later went public. Their name is Oracle. And the other was much more exciting. It was a little sexy startup funded by uh, a guy called Nolan Bushnell, 
who uh, he 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 provided the angel funding for this startup called Etak E T A K, and Etak uh, really invented the first successful uh, in vehicle navigation system, and uh, this was back in 1985, and um, you know just by taking that chance of working with that company is how I got involved with navigation and mapping and I've been there ever since and so yeah I'm a kind of accidental mapping nerd and uh, been in this industry for close to 40 years now. I mean this is what we're having this conversation about is I want to dive a little bit deeper into it so you said you joined ETAC 1985 uh, first in vehicle navigation system People think, well, for me, I think navigation system, I can think, you know, like now you have, you put your iPhone on the windshield. Before that, maybe there was like TomTom is the company that comes to mind, but that's early 2000s, I would say. What does in-vehicle navigation look like in 1985? Well, you got to think back to what the technology was like back in 1985. So let me provide a bit of context. Uh, this was prior to GPS being made readily available. Um, GPS was up there, but it was only for use by military uh, organizations within the US. So there was no GPS available. Um, there was no uh, high capacity storage available. So there was um, no CD-ROMs. Uh, disk drives, hard disk drives were out there. There were about 10 megabytes in capacity, but they were very expensive. Um, there were no LCD displays. It was all CRT monitors. Um, and the chips and the power of the processors was pretty limited. You were dealing with not 64-bit uh, chip technology, but 8-bit chip technology and about 128K of RAM. So it was a whole set of challenges that had to be solved with a very, very limited amount of resources. And so when... ETAC invented the navigator. It was founded by a guy called Stan Honey, who is a world-renowned maritime navigator. And um, he was sitting on a boat um, with Nolan Bushnell, and they were cogitating about ideas. And Stan came up with the idea of, you know, I think I can solve this in-vehicle navigation problem, and I think I know how to solve it. And... Um, this had been tried before. There, there were navigation systems that had been attempted before it, and it was all based on a system called dead reckoning. And if you don't know about dead reckoning, it's the idea of taking input from sensors, like a compass or some kind of uh, sensor that can measure distance, um, and using input from those sensors to determine where you're going. So you tell the system initially where you are, and then based on the compass sensor, you can tell which direction you're moving in. And based on the distance and speed sensors, you can tell how fast you're moving and how far you've traveled. The problem with those systems is the error in the sensors, built, sensors builds up over time. And so as time goes on, your confidence in where you are gets less and less. And so error builds up in the system. And then, you know, after a while... Uh, the system no longer knows accurately where you are. And so you have to somehow rein in those errors that build up over time and reset 
the system to, to, to make it understand where you are. And so the invention that ETAC and Stan Honey came up with was um, it was a dead reckoning system, but it was enhanced with um, map matching. And so the idea was if you had a map in the background and you're measuring how far you're going down a road on the map with a compass and with distance sensors, if you make a turn on that map, say make a right turn or a left turn, it's likely that you're probably making that turn onto a road. <laughs> and so as the errors build up, if you make that turn, you can then say, okay, well, you probably didn't turn 100 feet before that turn or 100 feet after that turn. You probably made the turn on that street. And so at that point, you can snap back the error bars down to, uh, down to zero and continue your dead reckoning from there. So that was the secret source, if you like, behind the ETAC navigation system. Um, but in order to make it all work, they had to solve a whole bunch of other problems. So uh, they had to make the system affordable. And when it released in 1985, it was about $1,300, I believe, was the list price. I don't know what $1,300 is now, but it's probably around the same price as uh, what Apple is proposing for their Vision Pro, about $3,000, I would imagine. So it was expensive, but it wasn't too expensive. Um, but still, we had to keep the cost down. And so um, it was an 8-bit CPU running in a shoebox size box in your trunk. There were wheel sensors that were attached to the non-driven wheels on your brake calipers. There was an electronic compass that got installed on your back window. And there was a CRT display, a small vector CRT display that was mounted on your dashboard. And then to store all the software and to store all the maps, there was no CD-ROM, hard drives were too expensive. So it was all stored on cassette tape. And um, that was a whole interesting problem in itself because if you think about it, uh, cassette tapes, if you've used one, not many people have perhaps, but the tape moves very slowly. Uh, it moves about one inch per second or between one and two inches per second. And uh, it really needed to move a lot faster so you could get the data quick enough to display the map on the screen. And so we had to re-engineer the tape drive. So instead of reading at one or two inches per second, it read at 120 inches per second. So you could get to the data quickly enough. Um, there was another problem too with the data storage in that if you think about a map, a map is two-dimensional, right? You've, you've, you're moving uh, north and south, east and west. And a tape is one-dimensional. So how do you store that two-dimensional data on the tape such that when you need to get the next bit of map, that next bit of map is close to where you are on the tape to begin with or where you are now? And so we had to develop all sorts of software techniques to store two-dimensional data on a one-dimensional medium so that the seek times um, to find the next bit of data as you're traveling around were, were low enough to, to, to uh, not result in a blank map as you're driving down the road. So there was a ton of different problems like that. Um, and, um, you know, eventually that, the, those problems were solved. The product was released. And uh, 
a lot of the techniques that were developed for data storage and the techniques that were developed for map matching to reduce errors based on the dead reckoning that you have with sensors are still used today. Um, you know, if you use Apple Maps or Google Maps in your car using your phone, um, you know, that snapping technique to snap you back to the map based on um, where you are is, is still used today. Yeah, I'm guessing like a lot of the philosophy is just pioneered and then it's a lot of the underlying technology that changes. I'm curious, who was buying this at that time? So we sold, the eTech Navigator was sold in um, automotive stereo stores. So you, back in those days in the 1980s, if you wanted a decent stereo for your car, a lot of the OEMs, OEMs really didn't you know, provide you with a decent stereo when you bought a car. So it was typical to go to an automotive stereo store to get an upgrade. And it was those stores that sold, sold the device initially. Um, one of the downfalls and the difficulties in making eTAC successful was the installation time. Because yeah, you have to imagine. install all these sensors and you have to rip out seats and put in tape drives and displays and compasses and put the CPU in the trunk. It was about an eight hour installation time uh, for the system. And so um, not only did you have to pay the 1300 bucks for the eTAC Navigator, but you had to pay somebody for eight hours work to go and install this thing. Um, so very difficult from the, the, the sales point of view, but the technology was still very valid. And so it wasn't long before eTAC pivoted to become not a consumer, direct-to-consumer company, but a software technology and hardware technology licensing company. And so the company pivoted to license the technology to uh, General Motors, uh, to Robert Bosch Corporation in Germany, and to Clarion, uh, which was uh, a major manufacturer of um, radios in, in Japan. And so it was through those those license agreements that um, the that ETAC remained in business and, and managed to continue uh, growing. So what was what was licensed? Mapping data? No, it was licensing the navigation technology. Okay. And so what what General Motors and Bosch did was they took that 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 um, technology license and they started to develop their own hardware around it. So and is that starting to become software then? Yes, that was software technology that was mm -hmm. licensed. Now as part of all that um, there was, of course, the map. We needed a map to display on the screen. And, um, you know, back in those days, there weren't any digital maps. Nobody, had, you know, Google Maps wasn't around. Apple Maps wasn't around. TomTom, um, Tom, you know, didn't exist yet. Here didn't exist yet. And so nobody was, um, nobody was creating maps. There was nobody you could go to, except perhaps in the U.S., uh, there was part of the government, the U.S. Census Bureau, that was starting to create digital maps in order to um, manage and run the census that they do every 10 years. And so they had started creating a digital map that they called GBF Dime Files. And uh, this was uh, for the 1980 census uh, in the U.S., which is held every 10 years in the U.S. And... Um, 
you know, back in the early days of ETAC, they thought, oh, maps, that's the easy part. We'll just get those from the government. <laughs> we'll get those from the Census Bureau. And so yeah. they got these GBF dime file maps, and it was quickly realized that they didn't fit the bill. They were stick maps, um, while the roads for residential streets were digitized. Uh, there was really no need for the Census Bureau to to digitize the freeways very well because nobody lived on freeways. People lived on residential streets. And the Census Bureau is concerned about where people live, not where people go. And so the you know maybe there'd be a, um, a line denoting the highways, but none of the intersections would were digitized properly. So there were no cloverleaf intersections or any. So all of that had to be redigitized and. Part of the technology that ETAC invented was not only the navigation system, but the technology required to create maps at large scale. In other words, you know, a lot of map data uh, efficiently. And there was no software out there that could do that back then. Um, ESRI existed. They, they had uh, founded themselves in 1969. Uh, this was 1985, so Esri had ArcInfo. But, you know, if you wanted to use ArcInfo, you could maybe digitize a single map sheet, um, and that would be about the limit of what you could do with ArcInfo back in those days. And, um, and so it was very, very limited technology. And so we had to invent map editing technology too. And the, I, I came into the company with a degree in computer science, and that's what I was hired to do, is develop map editing software um, that our folks who worked on digitizing workstations could use uh, to, to edit maps every day. And we had a lot of secret source in that area too that we kept as a trade secret. We didn't even patent it because we didn't want anyone else to know how we were creating maps. And... Um, so that was another part of the secret source. The dead reckoning and map matching was one part of the secret source, but the 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 map production system that we created um, to create and edit maps was was another part of that secret source. And that was very challenging too, because you know back in those days, PCs, as in desktop PCs, were That's just what I'm starting to about. become in existence. Right, if you um, had a few thousand dollars, you could buy an IBM PC and it would come with two floppy drives. And if you spent a lot more money, you could get a 10 megabyte hard drive for that. <laughs> you really couldn't digitize on an IBM PC. So we used mini computers. Um, there was a company called DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, that made mini computers. And um, we had a DEC mini computer. Uh, the specifications were it had two, two megabytes of RAM and we had bought two 400 megabyte disk drives for this machine. The, the 400 megabyte drives were in platters. Each 400 megabyte drive had about 10 platters. They were 19 inch wide and about 10, inch, 10 inches tall, about 10 platters in each one and that that 10 inch by 19 inch drawer would store 400 <laughs> megabytes. And we had two of those drawers and they were very expensive. And on that, that uh, deck 
uh, VAX mini computer with two megabytes of RAM and 800 megabytes of storage. We ran four digitizing workstations off of that uh, that ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had multiple shifts. We had people like me writing code, also compiling code on that same mini computer, all written in C um, back in those days. This is before C++. And we also had our uh, executive administrative staff also running the word processing software off that same mini computer. So, you know, you think today about how much resources people who write code have available to them today and think that, you know, back in those days in 1985, we had, you know, a machine with two megabytes of RAM and 800 megabytes of storage with about 10 people using it at the same time. And it was just insane um, uh, what we had to deal with. You know, I was writing this code to um, to edit maps, and I remember writing the code, and you have to wait 45 minutes for the program to compile. <laughs> 45 minutes for the program to compile. And um, when when some of these jobs ran, we you know, people did all these digitizing of maps, like for the San Francisco Bay Area, perhaps, and we used to create... Uh, these cassette tapes that went in the ETAC navigator and there were about six cassette tapes that covered the whole Bay Area and to do the post-processing of the map data to create one of those cassette tapes the job ran and you, you're going to smile at this one the job ran for sometimes two weeks two weeks and the meantime between failure for the hardware on computers at that time was about 10 days. So you had to keep your fingers crossed that the computer wouldn't break <laughs> from the time at which you started that job to the time at which it ended. Uh, we used to make jokes that we should always start the job right after the computer had been fixed because then there would be a greater chance of the program right. ending before the next failure, which of course... Um, <laughs> Was, was fallacy, but nonetheless, it was uh, a joke we was told. Yeah, the, the thing that comes to mind when I hear this is like, well, you know, of course, things have changed a lot, but also it seems like this was, there's still like a very analog, crafty aspect to it in many ways. I'm really curious, like, how did, even if you're writing code, like, just the fact that it's on tape, things like that, the fact that it's... You know, today I think we'd say it's on-prem, like you have this server that's somewhere. We're not talking about even like moving data around, things like that. I'm really curious, like what was your experience of a lot of the internet coming in and, you know, probably completely changing how a lot of these things were, were working, where the way you're talking about it is you make your tape with a map. That is something that's fixed. There's no update to it. And if it is, it's like there's a new tape that comes out. This is completely different from how we think about maps today. If we take a, you know, we look at Google Maps, Apple Maps, I'm sure we're going to talk about those. But if there's construction at the end of the road, you expect that that is going to show up on your map and it's going to tell you, hey, to go to work today, you're going to have to actually take another road because there's construction here. Like the update is nearly in real time. We want it to happen right there. And so... How do we get from one where it's on tape, we have to wait two weeks for one map to be made to, you know, we have these updates. Like what, what was, 
living through that journey like? Well, it was, um, I mean, back in the early days of map making in the era of ETAC and later on in the era of personal navigation devices like the TomTom or the Garmin navigator that you put on your dashboard, um, those came, uh, you know, initially with tapes, of course, with ETAC, but later on with CD-ROMs. Um, and um, the um, the devices um, used that as the main storage mechanism. And then later on, you know, the, the storage changed, of course, from, from CD-ROM to, to, you know, SD cards and stuff like that. And for many, many years, um, you had to wait for those updates. And of course, um, either TomTom or Garmin, or if you had a, you know, spent the $2,000 for that navigation option in your car, you would have to spend hundreds of dollars for a new map. And the cadence for getting that new map was at best once a year. And you pay hundreds, hundreds of dollars for that new map update. Um, Back in the late 90s um, was, well, the, the internet started to get popular in the mid-1990s, about 1995, 1996 is when a Mosaic browser first came out and was quickly surpassed by the Netscape Navigator browser. And when the Net, Netscape Navigator browser hit, hit the market, people really started to get online in a big way. And it was um, in 1996 shortly after that, that um, MapQuest came to be. And MapQuest uh, initially was a product started by a company called Geosystems Global Corporation. They later renamed the company to MapQuest.com. And they started this era of um, of internet mapping, and, and, it, and it just took off. Now, um, I was lucky to be part of that launch. I was at MapQuest. I'd left ETAC by then. Um, and um, I was part of the launch back in 1996. Um, the, 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 just because it was on the internet didn't mean it got updated frequently. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, you think and you have this impression that because something is online, oh, it must be updated every second. Well, that's not the case. Yeah. If you think about the mechanics, it was pretty much the same as the ETAC era where you had to get maps and those maps had to be updated. Now, in MapQuest's case, they didn't make maps. They got maps from third parties. And the third parties were people like... Uh, they weren't called TomTom, Tom, and here back then they were called Navigation Technologies, which pre preceded here. And TomTom, Tom, uh, there was another outfit that was later acquired by TomTom Tom called GDT and another organization called Teleatlas. Mm -hmm. Those organizations were the map makers back in those times. And so MapQuest had to wait for new releases from those organizations and they then had to incorporate those new releases of map data, map data into the internet web services offering. By the time MapQuest got an update from uh, GDT or from Teleatlas or from one of its mapping suppliers, um, you know the map data itself, because Teleatlas had to do processing or GDT had to do processing, it was already three months out of date. And by the time MapQuest had got done with its own processing, 
you know, that took a couple of months. So it was, you know, five or six months out of date by the time you got to see it on MapQuest. So it was it was pretty typical for um for the data not to be particularly current. Yeah. MapQuest was a free offering. Um we made it available for free. It was uh, it was funded by advertising. That was and, gonna be my question. Um, yeah. And um and so you the way it worked was you'd go onto mapquest.com, you'd look up the location of an address, you'd look up the location of um, um, the second address of where you wanted to go. So I am here um, at home and I want to go to the store. Um, MapQuest would give you the, the directions, not navigation, but directions to get from point A to point B. And the way those directions were communicated was a list of instructions. Okay, go down the street at this, you know, at Apple Street, turn left, and then drive for three miles and turn right on Acorn Street, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you you didn't take you didn't see those directions on a screen. You printed out those directions and you took them with you. Let me let me interrupt you there. I'm I'm curious, like, like, um, how does the advertising work like the business model as well because the main thing i'm thinking about is like today we think about the advertising there's like google and facebook basically facebook coming later than google but basically those are the places where you they're marketplaces for advertisers basically and google maps as far as i can tell is really an advertising business as well uh just instead of it being websites it's just flattened on a map how did you how did mapquest figure out who to advertise from because it it feels like now you have two problems you have you need to make a map that's really good for people for like just people to come to want to use the map but you also need to make a platform that's really good for advertisers so they come and they want to advertise there that's kind of solved today in a way that like Google just tells you, oh, we can track people everywhere online where they're going. That wasn't the case because from what I understand, we're talking like even before exists at this point. Yeah. Or oh, right, maybe where, where people Google starts happening. Yeah, this was this was back in the days of Yahoo and um Yahoo was at its prime, AOL was at its prime. And um you know, back in those days, internet advertising was just starting to take off. And the way it worked then and the way it works now, it's a cost per click mechanism <laughs> uh, or a cost per impression mechanism. And that was measured using something called CPM or, or cost per thousand and being Roman for thousand. And then... Um, the, the you know if you got a certain number of impressions there was a certain rate for those impressions or CPM rate um, now the problem that a lot of these sites had back at this time is they didn't know like you said they didn't know where you are or where you're going and because in MapQuest's case you were entering in two locations a starting point and an ending point we had a huge advantage in knowing something about you that all of these other sites didn't know. And so guess what? We could charge a premium on the CPMs for those advertising that nobody else could charge. Um, 
Oh, you're looking to go to so-and-so or you're looking to get directions from point A to point. So we had that knowledge that nobody else had. And so we could segment the available inventory and put a greater value on that inventory as a result. And that, that was, you know, think back to the mid 1990s. That was the era of the dot-com boom. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was internet advertising was starting to take off and we were able to ride the wave of the dot-com boom uh, on that advertising pitch and on that pitch that we could actually charge a high, higher CPM for advertising that other companies could based on the knowledge that we had about where you are and where you're going. But the dot-com also bursted at some point. So what happened to MapQuest? uh when a lot of things so it's very interesting down. yeah mapquest was very successful we um you know back uh i joined in 1996 mm -hmm. and uh, mapquest launched uh, in jan i joined, joined in january of 1996 mapquest launched in february of 1996 uh, just a month after i joined um and uh, back in those days the company had three businesses we had a business which was mapquest we had a business creating custom solutions for various organizations, mapping solutions for various organizations. Um, for example, one of those solutions was AAA, um, the travel company or the travel organization. Uh, they had something called triptychs, which gave you routes from A to B. And um, they used to be done on paper. And you'd go and visit the AAA office and say, hey, I'm going from Wilmington, Delaware to New York City, and I need to get um, a set of maps that covers that journey. And AAA would create um, something that they called triptychs for you, and it was, was all done through paper. Sorry, what, what are those triptychs? Triptychs, T-R-I-P-T-I-K. What is it? Is it like a set of uh, like directions? It was a set of maps that showed you um, basically um, in a linear fashion the freeways that you were going to take or the highways that you were going to take to get from, in my example, from Wilmington to Washington, D.C. Or, or New York City or wherever it was. And so they, they pull out these individual strip maps, if you like, and assemble them into a package and create that for you. And that was done very manually. Um, the company that started MapQuest, Geosystems, automated that whole system for AAA, and that was a part of their business. Um, a third part of their business was doing cart custom cart cartographic maps. They created atlases. They created maps that you see in textbooks. Um, and so there were three parts of this business uh, that Geosystems had. MapQuest quickly became the most valuable part of that because it was all about the internet. The internet was the in thing back then. It was all about internet advertising, which was the in thing back then. And so that drove the value of the company. We thought, mm, maybe if we're lucky, the company will be valued at $40 million uh, and we'll do really well if we're, you know, if, if we're just insanely lucky uh, with with this MapQuest thing, it might be worth $400 million. Well, when MapQuest went public in 1999, it IPO'd at $800 million. Um, 
And then that caught the attention of a few other organizations. And one of those organizations was America Online or AOL. And AOL thought, well, we're all about advertising uh, for, for what we do at AOL. MapQuest would be a fantastic addition to our portfolio. So we should buy them. And so they bought, AOL bought MapQuest um, in 2000. Uh, 2001, and um, they ended up paying about $1.1 billion for, for MapQuest. So it was just an insane ride. Now, at the same time, AOL was also acquiring other companies. One of those companies you may have heard of, Time Warner. and um, I have not, actually. Uh, so Time Warner is you know one of the biggest media companies uh, that's on the planet. It's now... Um, um so warner brothers oh, pictures i thought it was like another mapping company i was like no i've not no no, no, no. okay was the, <laughs> the big media company right <laughs> and so aol bought time warner because their stock was riding very high and they they had a huge valuation they thought well we should merge with the media company um and uh, there's a lot being written about that story the net effect on mapquest was it it distracted AOL from what they had invested in in MapQuest. Yeah. And unfortunately, because of that distraction, MapQuest was ignored. They didn't invest heavily in MapQuest after the acquisition. And guess who came along? Google. Yeah, and that's so kind of Google, what I'm thinking about. Google, uh, you know, saw opportunity there. They obviously saw an advertising opportunity there, ultimately. Uh, they also did some... Uh, things on the technical side that made the maps more interesting for example they invented i think i think the term is slippy maps where you can click and drag the map you know just by clicking on it and dragging it moves the map down you know before they before you saw that on google maps everyone had to kind of click a button to move right or move north or move south or move east it was kind of one image at a time there was no kind of um, fluid movement of the map and Google Google came out with that concept when, when they launched Google Maps and people loved it and that was another uh, factor that, that was um, not a nail in MapQuest coffin, MapQuest still exists today, if you go and um, you know type in mapquest.com into your browser you'll still find it um, it's a very different organization than it was back in the 1990s, it's still funded by advertising um, but it's it's now owned by a very small or relatively small advertising agency who is trying to still milk it for, for, for advertising dollars. I'm not sure how many people still use MapQuest or even know MapQuest exists, but um, it's still out there. So let's go there. Uh, I actually don't know when Google Maps started, uh, but I'm sure you do. Do you, do you know? Um, I th I was I never worked for Google, but I think it was two thousand and five. Okay, that's but that's, that's a ballpark. That's that's enough. Yeah. So two thousand five, Google Maps starts. That's way ahead of Apple Maps, by the way, right? The Apple Maps twenty thirteen. Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. No, that's twenty thirteen yeah. is when you joined. Okay, so yeah, twenty five, yeah. Google Maps starts. Um, and I'm I'm guessing like. This is me guessing at this point, but it's probably the same thing as like trying to do advertisements uh, on like using kind of the whole Google 
monopoly, well, not monopoly, but like knowledge of advertising and then putting it on a map. And I, I think that probably hasn't changed too much except gotten better as in Google Maps is funded by an advertising business the same way that Google the search engine is. And then there's Apple. Um, so we said Apple Maps starts in 2012. As far as I can tell, and, and from what I've read from you and what I see a lot, it's definitely not the same approach. Uh, it, it's not funded by advertising, as far as I can tell. And so I'd love to get into those two uh, maps because I think they're the biggest maps that we have today. I'd argue OpenStreetMap is actually huge, and but it's more underlying to both of those. If you ask someone in the street what OpenStreetMap is, they probably don't know unless they're uh, you know, a software engineer or something. Most people, they know Apple Maps and, and Google Maps. Um, first up, first question, is, is that like a fair um, assessment? One is based on advertisement, the other isn't? Yeah, I think I think it's a fair assessment. I mean, back in the initial days when Google Maps first launched, I don't think there was any advertising, but clearly they they had that in mind when they <laughs> yeah, launched to make it. it sustainable. And it took them a few years. Um, and so, yeah, you you do see uh, advertising um, in relation to Google Maps and in Apple Maps. You don't, at least you don't yet. I I don't see any evidence of it. Um, um, the the let's let's rewind a little bit further sure. to to think about how Apple Maps came to be originally. Let's do it. Um, and why why did Apple get into Maps in the first place? Well. Um, Apple actually initially got into maps because of photos um, back in, oh, I don't know, probably the mid-2000s as well. Um, you had the Photos app for your Mac. This was prior to the iPhone. And you stored all of your photos inside the Photos app uh, on your Mac. And um, you could organize those photos into albums, but Apple wanted it. Uh, to make it possible to kind of see where those photos were taken. And it was just starting to be the era where cameras, everyone was using point-and-click cameras, or maybe if you were a pro, you were using a DSL camera of some kind. Um, um, those cameras were just starting to get GPS um, attached to them. And so having that metadata associated with the photo about where that photo was taken was starting to become available, and, and, and Apple wanted to make that possible to see where those photos were taken on the map. So that's how they initially got into the mapping business. But of course, the real, the real catalyst for getting into the mapping business was launch of iPhone back in 2007. And so when, when Apple was developing iPhone, I wasn't at Apple back at the time, but Steve Jobs was very adamant that when they launched the iPhone, it came with a set of apps that would be kind of relevant to what you did with this mobile device sitting in your pocket. And so there was music on there, there was camera on there, so there was photos on there, there was your calendar, there was email, there was a web browser. And Steve said, okay, well, we need a mapping app because you're going to be mobile, and when you're mobile, you need a map. So we need a maps app. And so um, Apple didn't know anything about mapping back in those days, and so... Um, they went to Google and they said, hey, you know, 
we'd like to use your data. And so they licensed the data from Google. Uh, the app itself was not developed by Google. The app was designed and developed. Um, the whole UI was designed and developed by Apple. Uh, but the tiles, the map tiles that came in underneath that were Google map tiles. And so that's what um, iPhone launched with back in 2007. And uh, it was, you know, part of the reason for the iPhone success is because now you're out and about and you could find out stuff. And if you look at a lot of the early ads for iPhone, um, a lot of the kind of use case ads that Apple did back in those days to show you what you could do with an iPhone were um, use cases revolving around, you know, oh, I want to go out to eat or find a sushi bar. And, you know, so there, there were some great ads that kind of illustrated that. Um, but as time went on post 2007, there were two things that Apple came to realize. Number one, um, with the Google Maps tile data, it really couldn't be in control of its own destiny in terms of the experience it wanted to provide to its end users. It was Google's map and that was it. What um, was the, let, let me interrupt you there. What, what were in, in practice some of the shortcomings? Why, why was Google's data not enough? Um, so the map tiles back in those days were, I believe, raster map tiles. And so, you know, the rasters were developed with certain color schemes and, and, and you know, the, the, there was a limit to what you could do with that map data in right. terms of look and feel. Um, and, um, you know, if they wanted to do something different or add an extra layer of data, it would have been very difficult for I them see. to do that. Um, and so, so it was constraining in that regard. Um, um, to provide a complete experience, Apple realized they really needed to own the whole stack and they needed to own the map uh, and the map data. The other influence on the switch was, listen, Google, through the use of the app, through users' use of the app, knew everything about where you are and where you're going. And Apple didn't like that, right? Yeah, they didn't fair enough. want their customers' location data going to Google so that Google could take advantage of it for advertising or you know, some other use um, within their organization. In many ways, it's kind of like they own the, uh, the, the first thing that comes to mind is this analogy of like the App Store and the, the Play Store where like Google and Apple own kind of the operating system and what you can have on it. But this is the same thing, but for a map where Google would own like the mapping operating system in a way. And so I, I see Apple wanting to remove that and own. So those two things kind of point towards the direction Apple wanting to do their own full mapping application. Exactly, exactly. It's very, uh, I mean, the analogy I always draw is it's very similar to the silicon chip uh, story with Apple, right? Uh, you know, Apple was dependent on um, IBM and then later Intel for the silicon chips that it put in its devices. Um, and um and and you know it realized it had to get out of that so it could control the whole stack and, and create and and in doing so then be able to create the experience it wanted to create for its users so let, let me on, on that i think there's one thing that comes from us like 
every company probably wants to own everything, but there's a reason why every app on your phone doesn't have its own operating system or all the other uh, computer OEMs like Dell and HP don't also create their own silicon. It's, these are incredibly costly and complicated endeavor. So there's like a, a, a trade-off. If you're a, a Dell, like what you're going to try to focus on is creating, I don't know, a great uh, experience for the user who doesn't actually really care about what's underneath it. So there's this trade-off, right, between we're going to own everything, but that's going to cost a lot of money. How how do you justify that as well? That that that's yeah, it's an excellent point, Max, and um, one worth delving into. In the case of Apple getting into the silicon business, I think when they dived into the silicon business, they knew full well it was going to cost them a boatload of money to start, you know, building the domain expertise and you know um, to develop, design, develop, and fab get chips fabricated. I mean, they don't make chips, but um, yeah, the design, you know, the hard yeah, work, yeah, yeah. the design, and everything. Um, so they they dove into that with with the with the knowledge that hey, you know this is this is going to cost us a lot of money, and we'll need to invest billions of dollars in in order to make this work. And you're right, there are very few companies on the planet that can afford to do that. And Apple was in a fortunate position to do them to do that with with chips. Maps, however, is a completely different story. Um, when Apple decided to switch from Google Map tiles or Google Map data to its own map in 2012, I think there was a little bit of naive thinking going yeah, on. Yeah, I'm other guessing words, there's that. It's like either you know it's going to cost a lot of money and you prepare for it, or you're probably just naive and you go in it. Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, think about, think about, the, the industry back in those days. So what was around at Apple? So one of the most successful products at Apple back in those days was um, iTunes. And so you could not only upload your songs, but also there was the iTunes library and you could buy songs and you know pay 99 cents for a song or buy an album. And so they knew all about songs. And they thought, well, you know, maps, that can't be too hard. It's kind of like iTunes. It's about albums and genres and artists and songs <laughs> and, you know, maps. It's pretty similar. It's about roads and streets and, you know, street names. It must be the same. Um, unfortunately, um, they forgot that, you know, maps change a little more frequently than albums and songs and artists and, you know, the, the 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 songs on an album um, stay the same. They don't change. You know, the the songs on that that um, David Bowie album, you know, um, yeah. don't change. Whereas a map, they change. And so, I think there was a little bit of. I I wasn't there at the time, but I think there was a little bit of naive thinking going on. Uh, oh yeah, we could do this. It's it can't be too hard. And then of course they launched in in 2012 and. Um, you know, they they got the black eye. For those of you that don't know the story, in 2012 they launched. It was not a good launch. It's one of the most embarrassing launches, product launches that Apple has ever done. Tim Cook had to issue an apology uh, and tell tell users, you know, try these other apps instead of our map. You know, I'm sorry. I'm actually I'm I'm not familiar. I I read that that happened, but I am actually not familiar with what happened. 
Yeah, so what, what happened was quick, you know, they launched it with great fanfare and it had a few cool features like a flyover feature so you could fly over landscapes uh, with satellite photography and it all looked very cool, but the underlying data was not very good. And the underlying data came from TomTom and others and um, it wasn't just about the data, it's about how you make use of the data. So just because just you have data doesn't mean that you're going to provide good directions. You've got to create those algorithms to figure out what's the best route from A to B and do you take that road or this road. And the algorithms that Apple had created, for example, for directions weren't very good and they were sending people the wrong way and the geocoding wasn't very good. In other words, the process of finding an address wasn't very good. Right. And and so people quickly got frustrated and, and you know, the media... Um, caught wind of this and there were all these stories of you know how bad apple maps was and um it quickly became a huge embarrassment and and that's what precipitated tim cook's apology uh there was a guy who was responsible for for maps uh, a guy called uh, steve forstall who was uh essentially fired um okay. because of the debacle and um it was an interesting period. I think, um, you know, there was a lot of head scratching going on at the time. You know, this is this is terrible. We've had this big disaster. Should we get out of the mapping business or should we stay in it? You know, should we just go back to using Google Maps? I'm sure that question went around the corridors at Apple. Um, but I think they quickly came to realize that, you know, maps and location have so much to do with everything you do every day that absolutely, you know, mapping and navigation has to be a core confident, a competence that we develop. And so it wasn't a question then of taking their foot off the gas. It was a question of putting your foot flat to the floor and getting the, uh, the, the, you know, building the organization that they needed to build in order to to build the product that you see in Apple Maps today. And it took them 10 years. It really took 10 years to do that. I think Apple Maps is, you know, in many countries around the world is a, is is at least as good as, as what you get from Google. In some ways, it's better. In some other parts of the world, it's not as good. Obviously, there's still more work to do, but, um, but, it, but it was a 10-year journey to get there. And in that in that decade since t- together, you you've been at Apple for most of that decade, if I understood correctly. Um, so you joined in two thousand thirteen, uh, like one year uh, or a few months after the launch. Uh, what were you brought in to do, and kind of what is the mindset at that point, like after that launch? Well, yeah, I was brought in. I came in about a year after the initial launch, and um, you know the organization was still reeling from from that initial launch, and um, it was um, it was a case where I think Apple wanted to just um, you know they Apple doesn't go into a business wanting to be number two. Apple goes into a business to be the the leader in in that business and so that was the mindset that the organization had back in those days and there was really um you know no limit being placed on the organization to do whatever they had to do to 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 
build a map that was going to be uh, an insanely good experience for their users. And so it was, it was, we, we were the underdogs, right? And in a lot of ways, it was fun being the underdogs, uh, even being at a huge company like Apple. Compared and to so Google Maps, was, right? Yeah, we were the mm -hmm. underdogs compared to Google Maps, obviously. And they were, um, it was, it was a source of great excitement and passion. And, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to build the world's greatest map kind of feeling within the organization. Um, everyone knew it was going to take a ton of work and, um, everyone knew it, you know, there was a lot of expertise brought in from other organizations. So within the organization, you know, if you look at the, you can go and look in LinkedIn at a lot of the people who work in Apple maps, you'll see their provenance is from other mapping organizations like Navtech or here, or, um, you know, Esri or, or other companies, TomTom, that have been in the business. And so they brought in the, 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 the people with the subject matter expertise to really develop that organization into what it is today. Um, I was brought in to help with partnerships. So if you think about building a map, um, you know, obviously what, perhaps not obviously, but what Apple had to do is what a lot of mapping organizations do. They have a fleet of cars, a fleet of vehicles, and they equip those vehicles with sensors, cameras, and LIDAR, and all sorts of, um, you know, high accuracy GPS sensors. And they drive that fleet around the, around the, 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 the country uh, to collect data. And you probably heard of or maybe even seen the the google maps cars that have driven around you may have seen ones from tom tom you may have seen ones from here too um and apple developed its own fleet now the great news about those vehicles with all these sensors is you can collect a lot of data right you can collect information about uh, the streets and you can collect information about the street signs and the traffic lights and the stop signs and the turn restrictions. And from the, you know, high resolution imagery, you can even collect data about, you know, lane information and, um, you know, highway signs information and stuff like that. So there's a lot of data that you can get from driving around those vehicles. But there's a lot of data you can't get. You can't get zip codes from driving around a vehicle. It's not going to tell you where the zip code boundaries are. It's not going to tell you really where the city boundaries are. Um, yeah, you're going to pick up some addresses from, you know, you know where addresses are displayed, but actually it's very difficult to, to get all of them. Um, you're going to pick up some information about street signs, but it's not necessarily going to get all of them. You're not going to pick up any information about public transit networks from driving around cars. You're not going to pick up information about parks or schools or points of interest or um, indoor maps or any of that stuff. And so the, the maps team, like any other mapping organization, needed a team to get that data from other organizations. In other words, we needed a partnerships team that would go and source that data um, from other organizations, a lot of them were government organizations, but some were third-party commercial organizations. And so the team that I was privileged enough to work with uh, while I was at Apple was was tasked with um, 
sourcing that data and forming uh, partnerships with organizations that could provide that data that we could layer on top and pour into the map and create the experience that you see today. Yeah, I, I read you were working uh, on some of the indoor mapping as well, which I think is not something people think about a lot when thinking about maps, is like the indoor mapping as well. Can you talk a little bit about what that entailed? Yeah, I mean, indoor mapping had been tried before. A, a number of organizations had tried uh, indoor mapping and they've been um, people had dipped their toes in the water. Um, you know, by the time we got thinking about indoor maps uh, in, on the Apple Maps team, we obviously had um, routing and navigation if you're driving a vehicle. And I think the public trans transit directions were in there as well. Um, so we started... We started to think about indoor maps when we got started with public transit. And so if you think about taking public transit, particularly in a large city when you're using a, uh, you know, one of those um, um, subway, you know, broad subway networks like in London or New York, how many times have you taken a subway or the London Underground, you got to your destination station and then you can't figure out which exit should I take? Um, you know, do I go out this exit or that exit? And you go out the exit, you get, you make your best guess, and then you find yourself, you know, on the wrong side of the street or, you know, a quarter of a mile away from where you really need to be. And had you had just taken that other exit, you would have realized where you were. Um, well, when, when Apple Maps got started on doing public transit directions, they realized, okay, this is a common problem. You need to know which exit to take. And when we guide you from point A to point B, not only do we want to tell you um, which trains to take, but when you get to your destination station, we want to guide you to the right exit of that station um, to to be closest to your destination. And so... They went to the public transit agencies and they say, hey, have you got this data? And um, all of the agencies said, mm, no, we don't, we don't capture that kind of information, sorry. And so what Apple had to do, and this is kind of typical of the way Apple thinks about stuff, is they said, okay, well, that's fine. We'll just go and survey every station <laughs> and we'll collect all that data ourselves. <laughs> And so they literally sent out teams of people to survey every subway station in the cities where they provide public transit directions and um, to collect all of that exit information so they could give you directions. Yeah, that and, sounds like it's still a little bit the approach what about what Apple is doing today with some of the more recent updates to maps with like 3D buildings and things like that. It seems like it's still a lot of crafted rather than automated at scale approaches, which is like, we're going to do it for 50 cities at first and then kind of learn in the way and try to do it everywhere. Compared to Google, where it's photogrammetry, for example, for the 3D maps, which is we're going to take satellite images and we're going to try to reconstruct them with an algorithm. It seems like, yeah, it, it's more of a philosophy as well than just for for that yeah i mean uh, there's there's some things i mean I've, I've talked about this in in you know in stuff i've written about i have an industry blog called map happenings where mm -hmm. i write a lot about uh, uh, about this stuff and i think it's it is a difference in philosophy and uh, the way i like to characterize it is i think if you distill it down i think apple is more about 
curated experiences. Yeah, I saw you wrote about that. And whereas Google and perhaps others are more about crowdsource experiences where they crowdsource information, they try and process that crowdsource data in an intelligent way to, you know, keep the good stuff and drop the bad stuff and um, give people a good experience that way. Um, certainly with the indoor maps or the indoor directions for public transit, it was very much a, uh, if you like, a, um, a very expensive manual approach to collect all that information. But I think it paid off. Uh, I think that curation paid off. Uh, for the indoor maps that Apple was later to do for airports and shopping centers, yes, it was very much a similar effort in that, you know, the indoor maps were manually created from floor plans. Um, but I think a lot of effort was was put in place uh, and Apple actually invented a lot of the technology and, 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 and standards to do this to make uh, creating indoor maps easier. Um, so if you think about... So I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's not just that you know, kind of very expensive curated yeah, approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in, in the indoor map side, Apple created a, you know, we found that all of the maps that we were getting from organizations from airports and shopping centers commonly came in floor plan format and CAD drawing format, computer-aided design format. And everyone digitizes their floor plans differently. <laughs> Yeah, and course. so it very, made it very expensive to convert those floor plans. You know, some people would call a space a space. Some people would call a space a unit. Some people would call a space a, a, um, a room. Some people would digitize the, the, the walls with a single line. Some people would digitize the walls with two lines to denote the thickness of the wall. So converting those floor plans to an indoor map was very expensive. And so... In order to try and automate that, um, the the maps team invented a um, a, a data standard uh, or a data specification, which later became a standard called IMDB or the Indoor Mapping Data Format. And they they later kind of pushed that to OGC, the Open Geospatial Consortium, and got the uh, the members of the OGC to to vote on that, and it's now become. Um, an industry standard for indoor maps. So that whole process of creating IMDF, um, which which Apple really pushed, helped the industry and it helped raise the tide for all boats um, to make indoor mapping just a, a, a much easier thing to do and made data exchange for, in, for indoor maps a, a, a lot easier. The first thing that comes to mind, well, actually, there's two things, but they're very related, is, is OpenStreetMap. Um, because you, you talk about, and I, I read, uh, I think it's one of your latest um, blog posts, and we'll get to some of your writings, I think, a, a little bit later, where Google is about crowdsourcing and Apple is about curation, at least on the map. If I think of OpenStreetMap, it's also, like, it is only crowdsourcing. It's we're going to get the entire world to map the entire world, basically. And... Then you, you mentioned standards, uh, mostly because people assign different words to the same thing in different places. And if you spend any time talking to anybody about OpenStreetMap, this thing comes up all the time. Like, what is a road? What is 
a house? What is a building? Like these things have so many different tags. And it seems like the solution that OpenStreetMap has found is like very different in a way because it is also crowdsource uh, and it's not at all curated. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to know, like, what do you think of OpenStreetMap and is it something that you've interacted with? Well, uh, OpenStreetMap is is a f- just an amazing, fantastic endeavor. I'm 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 just super impressed with um, you know what Steve Coe started with with OpenStreetMap. I remember the early days and seeing these kind of stick maps of London and OpenStreetMap, and I'm thinking, nah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, it became what it is today, and of course. Um, it it it's it's just a fantastic endeavor and in fact um you know so many organizations rely on openstreetmap particularly for the developing countries um uh you know where the commercial data isn't readily available and um it it, it it's it's a fantastic endeavor i think i i'm not an expert in openstreetmap and how it's organized but i think it's it's a standard to a certain extent yeah, but it's not a very rigid standard, right? So you mentioned tags a moment ago. You can create tags for different things, and there's no real kind of data dictionary of tags that thou shalt use, and you can invent your own. And um, you know that that I think results in a little bit of variability. Yeah, and and you kind of have to know what you're dealing with, and so um, if you know, whereas if you look at IMDF, for example, the the, the Apple created for uh, defining an indoor space, that is very rigid, and you have to call, you know, uh, a you know a, a space a unit a unit. You have to call a space a unit, and blah 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 blah. So there's a very rigid data dictionary, if you like, around IMDF, which which there isn't necessarily um, for OSM. And so that that makes it uh, that makes it more challenging to use, and that you have to know what you're dealing with. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, the underlying data is 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 impressive. And of course, let's be clear here: um, OpenStreetMap. Yes, it's a crowdsourced product. There are a lot of avid and very passionate OSM editors out there. And, um, um, you know, I think we probably in the mapping industry, we've come across them, but there's also a lot of organizations, well-known organizations that have invested a lot of resources into making OpenStreetMap better. Um, Apple has actually quite... Apple has, yes, publicly available information. You can see, Mm -hmm. you know, where the edits are coming from, uh, from, uh, that are going into OpenStreetMap. And I think... Um, I haven't looked at the statistics recently, but I think Apple was one of the biggest contributors to OpenStreetMap edits out there. One of the things I, I this is just something I thought about, is I, I talked to Steve about uh, some of the early days of OpenStreetMap, and he, he mentioned that it was a very conscious decision to try to make OpenStreetMap as simple as possible. In many ways, he was, from what I recall from this conversation, and what he told me was that there were people who were pushing for standardizing. No, 
Well, standardizing is complicated because it becomes a standard if people use it. You can create a standard, mm -hmm. but if nobody uses it, it's not much of a standard. But what he was advocating for is we need people to add data and then the rigor will come later. Like it, the hardest part isn't knowing like is like what is a wall, but where is a wall? So if people add something, even if it's not perfect, we'll be able to edit it later. And that was kind of the philosophical choice of the data structure of OpenStreetMap is incredibly simple, but that was what he thought was necessary for people to come in because the OpenStreetMap could only work if people would contribute. So you needed to lower the barrier to entry to contributing so low that it was easy for anybody. I think it's very different from what some of the things where you've talked about, where we're talking about computer assisted design, like nobody cares about how complicated that is. I just thought that was also like really interesting in, in many ways. It makes me wonder how Google is thinking about it because the easier it is to contribute, the more people might contribute, but then curating things becomes also a, a lot more complicated. Yeah, it does. I mean, I think I think in retrospect, um, you know, Steve took exactly the right approach. You want to reduce the friction, right? And you want to get as many people involved as possible as quickly as possible. And if you have a rigid data dictionary, that's going to make it difficult because when people want to add a new thing and that thing isn't in the dictionary, then exactly. they get annoyed and frustrated and they go away and they never come back. Um, and so, um, you know, there's, there's, there's that challenge. So I think it was the right choice. Now, Yes, what it results in is you have all this data, but it's not necessarily uniform, or it has varying exactly um, varying content of varying quality, and so there has to be something else done to kind of um, polish that up, if you like. And I think that's probably, you know, um, you know, if you if you think about the Overture Mats Foundation, which is that foundation that recently got launched, and you, I think you talked to Mark Prelo about it, who's mm -hmm. yep. running that organization recently. I think that was one of the main catalysts for getting the Overture Mats Foundation created, exactly. was to provide that that polishing that you needed on that that um, you know very voluminous, but in some cases, a little raw data that you get in in, in OpenStreetMap. I think and it's back so, to also what you were talking about very early on, where the, the needs of, when you were talking about why Apple decided to make its own map, is the needs that of Apple were different than the needs of Google. And so Google was developing its map differently than what Apple needed. And when I talked to Mark, that's one of the things that he mentioned as well, is that the the map that OpenStreetMap, the OpenStreetMap community is making doesn't always align with what some of the industry needs. But interestingly enough, doesn't necessarily have the means to go compete with Google or Apple. And so decided to kind of make a, a coalition of sorts of, of different companies and say, okay, we're going to do this in the open. That's how we're going to contribute together. There's Amazon, there's TomTom, uh, I forgot who the other ones are, um, but basically being on top of the, on top of some of what OpenStreetMap is doing. But it's back to the needs are different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the needs needs are very different. There's one thing we haven't touched on that uh, has kind of been looming in the background that I want to come back to. One of the topics that I, I often ask about and um, want to discuss on this podcast also is just 
the business models of all the different projects. I feel like if you understand where the money comes from and who the customers are, you kind of understand a lot of the structures of how things work. So we've talked a lot about Apple Maps. Uh, we talked about Google Maps. We mentioned Apple isn't an advertising business. Like Apple Maps is not trying to um, advertise. I think there's uh, there's this quote from Tim Cook, which is like, you're not like you're the product. It's for you. It's not for the advertisers. But the money has to come in somewhere. So what is the value for Apple of making Apple Maps? Great question. So um, it's all again about trying to provide, you know, an insanely great experience for, for Apple users. When you buy that, when you go to the Apple store and you buy the latest iPhone or iPad or, or whatever device, you're not just buying a piece of hardware, you're buying the software and the operating system and you're buying the apps that comes with it. And they want all of those apps to be, you know, just fantastically good. And so um, <clears throat> the the reason for doing a Maps app hasn't changed from 2007 when iPhone launched. They want to create a fantastic mapping experience. Now, if you look at that device, you buy the latest iPhone from the Apple Store, you'll see these people who write about them and say, how could they possibly charge you know, $800 for this iPhone when the parts inside are only worth $200. You know, this is, in, you know, insane. It's daylight robbery. Well, they forget when they say that, that there's a lot of money that goes into developing iOS. And there's a lot of money that goes into um, developing the various apps that you get, like Calendar and Mail and all, all of that stuff. And um, you, you no longer pay for the... Um, for the apps that you use to, um, you know, um, like numbers and, and pages to, to do your word processing or spreadsheets. All of that is free, and Map is another free app that comes along with it. So part of those many hundreds of dollars that you spend on your iPhone actually goes towards funding the development of the operating system and the apps. And so it's funded through hardware sales, not funded through advertising. Um, and the point that, st that that Tim Cook makes is, you know, for us, you know, um, you are not the product, whereas all of your usage that you, you know, when you use Google, for example, um, by your use of that product, you're telling Google something about you. You're telling Google about, you know, when you're active, where you're active, what you're doing, what you're interested in. And all of that information is, you know, really, you know, sucked into a database so that they can segment their advertising more easily and make that advertising more valuable. It gets back to that discussion that we had back at the, you know, the early days of MapQuest.com, where we had a more valuable advertising product because we knew something about where, where you, where you're starting and where you're ending, where you're, where you're going. And so um, Google needs to do that. They don't charge for their product. They need to, you know, make their va their advertising as valuable as possible. And so they need to suck as much information out of you as possible, thereby turning you into the product. Um, and so that's the point that Tim Cook makes. Um, you know, when when you use an Apple product, you are not the product. Um, 
you know, we, we, we're simply trying to create the best possible experience for you. I've seen uh, people sort of low rumblings of sort of winds of change of that and people mostly talking about it through the lens of the app store that is starting to have sponsored uh, answers. And I've, I've seen people talk online, like, first of all, like people love to talk about Apple stuff, I think way more than it, like what Google does if the app store changes. I feel like people are going to talk way more about a small change on the app store compared to the play to the play store. Um, so taking that with a grain of salt, but I've seen people mention that there is these sponsored uh, searches on the app store, just like Google, basically like the app store is a search engine for applications. Google is a search engine for the internet and has sponsored uh, at the top. So people kind of seeing this, Oh, this is a change in philosophy as well. Are we going to see Apple that's like, oh, we can charge you a lot for an iPhone and then kind of double dip on the other side? This might be a bit of a cynical view, but people seeing the App Store as start of as kind of the first iteration of that. Do you think that might happen to Apple Maps? Like if you were if we were to, you know, kind of enter more wild prediction territory, like do you imagine like, oh, hey, there's this we, we see that you often go to these types of restaurants. Oh, well, guess what? There's this one that's like right around the corner that you haven't tried, but it's actually really good. Yeah, so that's a great, that's a great question. So the question is um, a speculative question. Will, will, will Apple ever put advertising maps? I have no idea. I, I quit working for Apple over a year, over a year ago and... Um, even if that had been or you know is on the cards, I would never have known about it because they're, they're very secretive, um, not only outside but also within the organization. So anything we talk about here is purely speculative. Um, I think when when Apple tries to make suggestions to you about something you you might be interested in, they do it based on the information that's on your device. And so it's your device doing that, um, you know, making that recommendation. Um, um, not your data isn't sent up to some server and it's it's processed with, you know, lots of other different data and shared with other organizations. Um, so you see this, I think, a lot in, in the Apple uh, ecosystem with Siri and Siri will make suggestions to you you know, um, oh, um, you open Apple Maps and it will automatically suggest a particular destination to you, but that's based on the events that are in your calendar and it can see your next meeting is at, you know, 123 Main Street, so it's going to suggest 123 Main Street as a destination for you because it's getting close to that meeting time, right? And so that's the kind of thing that I think Apple wants to do. It wants to be helpful in a kind of a useful way and make recommendations that are useful. Now, let's talk about advertising versus recommendations because I think they're not necessarily the same thing. Advertising can be, and I'm sure we've all come across it, be very obnoxious. It will, you know, you'll get ads for stuff that's not relevant to you. And um, what one of the theories, I guess, behind Meta's position on 
on Apple's do not track um, feature that they introduced a few years ago was, you know, well, if we can't track you, we can't give you relevant uh, advertisements. And um, yeah, that's true. That's true to a certain extent, but there's better ways. I think there's probably better ways to do it without, without, um, you know, um, divulging private information about you or sharing private information. And and so I think if Apple were ever to do that and make suggestions and recommendations to you, it would want to do it in such a way that it, it kept that information, you, your information private, and also made it as relevant as possible. I think um, like one of the things people I've heard, I, I don't know where I stand on this, but it's something that I think has some, some an idea that has some credit to it, which is seeing one of the reasons Apple would have an interest in in like having this ask app not to track is that now Apple is the only one to know. Um, back to the maps of if uh, if you when you're on Facebook, Facebook knows everything you're doing. It's the same problem that Google had when um, that Apple had with Google in in the early days of the mapping. That that let me correct you on that. It's not Apple that knows. It's your device that knows. Because when you use when you use Apple Maps, when the information is sent up to the server to calculate those directions, it's associated with a uh, a random ID. So they actually don't keep track of where you are and where you're going. There's nothing back at Apple that says, "Okay, well, I know where Max has been for the last month." Um, that information isn't retained. It's retained on your device, yes, certainly on your iPhone, but that's kept um, that's kept on that device and it's not shared anywhere else. So there's a subtle difference there. I I think like again like just playing devil's advocate here. I feel like that is a trust that I ha- like personally I trust Apple when they say that that they're doing that, but it's kind of like they're the jury judge and executionary on that because I have no idea what's happening on my iPhone. If they tell me this is what's going on, I kind of trust them that that's what's going on. Again, I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm just saying the the power balance here is not really in my favor in in this case. Right. There's nothing. There's no covers you can open up and see what. Yeah. Really exactly. Going I, on. I I trust. Yeah. yeah. I I yeah. kind of you know trust them, uh, and I voted with my vault wallet that like I I have an iPhone. Um, I sort of trust Apple in that sense, but there's nothing that inherently proves that that's the case. That's why I think like it might be more of a cynical take to say, well, you know, Apple's just cutting the floodgate to Facebook so that they can keep the the that 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 data of like what have I been scrolling for the past hour, and kind of then um, you know use that for their own advertising. I'm not I'm not saying that's necessarily what's going to happen. I'm saying like these things put together like kind of open up that possibility of of something happening. And you know, I totally agree. This is purely speculative, but I feel like those are interesting conversations to to still have. It it is it is an interesting conversation and you're right to to a certain extent it's a matter of trust, right? Do you trust the organization to do the right thing? And um Listen, Apple's built its um, its whole reputation on that trust, and you know it it, it talks about privacy um, very frequently in its advertising. and And I think if it were to betray that trust, it would result in a in a huge fail for for Apple and a huge loss in in brand reputation. So, I think they've got to do that. 
and I, I, I think that's one of the reasons probably why you trust them is because you know that too, that if, if, they're, if, if, you're, if your trust were to be betrayed in some way, you and many others like you would, would, would think twice about the Apple brand and it would, it would have an impact on your, on your buying decisions going forward. I'm actually, I'm uh, conflicted on that because Apple is stark and it's moving a little bit away from the mapping and just talking about um, what people buy. Apple is not the most consumer friendly for a lot of things. Uh, if you want to repair a MacBook or an iPhone, uh, that is not a fun process to go through. If you want to go outside of the, you know, the walled garden of, of Apple, like is it, it's, they make amazing products. And I think anybody who says otherwise, uh, you know, might not be very fair, but there's a lot of concerns around or limitations around, uh, having right to repair your own uh, devices and things like that. So I think uh, th Apple have shown that sometimes they they will um, not really do what's best for the consumers and consumers will still buy uh, their products. So I actually don't know what would happen if Apple kind of went full on with Okay, we're just going to advertise to you now. Is it are they like so big and so entrenched in so many people's lives that people would just you know like this slow boiling frog and you'd be like, "Ah, well, <laughs> I don't know, but I really like my iPhone." Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I I guess time will tell. Time exactly. will tell Max. Yeah. We'll, we'll we'll watch and 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 see what happens. I think you know, I think Listen, I worked for Apple for nine years. I, you know, I, I, I had the, uh, the IV drip uh, inserted when I joined, and the Kool Aid was uh, <laughs> running through that IV drip for a long time. So, I've, I've kind of got to know the, the Apple DNA. I don't think it's in their DNA to do something sneaky like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I hope of, so. I was going to go back actually to your question about uh, advertising on maps and recommendations and stuff like that. It's, Please. it's a really interesting thing. I think. I don't know how much you use Google Maps versus Apple Maps. I, I use Apple Maps. I was going to ask you. <laughs> Obviously, I use Apple Maps more. I'm, I'm okay. wedded to the work that I did and proud of the work that we did. But, you know, in in Apple and in, in Google, I should say, in Waze and other things, you, you see ads there that aren't really relevant to you. I think I've seen it more in Waze than in Google where you'll see advertising for you know, fast food chains that you never go to and stuff like that. And it's like, eh, you know, why are you even showing me this? I, it's not, it's not useful. It's, 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 it's an annoyance. And I think in, in Google maps, you get things called populate, uh, promoted pins, excuse me, promoted pins and, and where it will promote certain things to you, which, which may or may not be relevant. And I've seen complaints about this whereby, you know, those, those, um, those, pins that they put on the map or promote on the map actually get in the way of other stuff that's important like street name labeling and stuff like that so you know because they put that promoted in there you can no, no longer figure out what street you're on so it's um it, it can be useful and the question is how can you make ratings for places actually useful and i run into this all the time particularly with restaurants where you know, you look at a rating for a restaurant 
and it's got tons of reviews and it's four stars or 4.5 stars. And then you go there and it's kind of meh, not yeah. so good, you know, and your, your, your opinion is kind of thumbs down and everybody else's opinion is, is, oh, this is great. Um, and, um, that's an interesting challenge, I think, that has not been solved in the geospatial mapping world, and 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 I think it's one that um, you know I'm 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 kind of watching and waiting to see if anybody solves it, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm just pulling Apple Maps here. I actually don't know. Does Apple Maps have ratings as well? That tells you which one I use. Yes. Yeah, so um, they use when when Maps first got oh, started, does. they did. Yeah, they did. Um, a partnership with Yelp, so a lot of those ratings and reviews are piped in from the Yelp platform, but there are others now as well from organizations like TripAdvisor and Booking.com. Um, but it was only in the last couple of years, two or three years, that Apple started allowing you to rate places as well. So you can give a thumbs up or thumbs down. Now that's places. the crowdsourcing over the curation uh so their crowdsourcing is starting to happen for ratings, at least. They don't do reviews, but they do do ratings. And um, the question is, okay, how are they or how are they going to make those ratings useful? Um, my theory about ratings, which I've yet to see, is how do you get to the set of ratings that are relevant to you? Um, uh. And... Right. So if you look at the rating for a restaurant, that's based on the universe of people that have rated that restaurant. Some of those people you may share, you know, you may share common um, likes with. Some of the people you may not like the kind of places, uh, you know, you know uh, that you like and vice versa. And so because of that, because of you're putting all of those ratings in one bucket, you're getting that kind of um average of ratings across this whole universe there's a th theory behind this called collaborative filtering and collaborative filtering is a really interesting idea i think the idea is if you've rated a bunch of places highly even perhaps in your hometown and um uh someone else has rated a few of those places highly as well. If you look at the Venn diagram, there's yeah. some overlap between Start those making ratings, a graph. right? Uh, and you can make a graph. And okay, you share common high ratings. Now I maybe go and visit your hometown. And so there's some places I haven't visited before. And so the places that you've rated highly, I might actually like because you've rated some of the places I rate highly. And so if you look at the Venn diagram of, you know, what you've rated that I haven't visited and what I've rated that you haven't visited, um, that that's a technique that I believe is called collaborative filtering. And I'd love to see that in, in, in ratings uh, to make that work. And um, I've yet to see it. I'm always a little skeptical when people, not skeptical, but like one big question comes up when people talk about these collaborative efforts is like, what are the incentives for people to do that? I think it's really hard to, as an individual, like you see sometimes like help us make this better. And like, it's a huge company that tells you that. And you know that like your individual contribution is not going to change anything for you. And 
one of the things I, I think back to is, again, OpenStreetMap, why do people contribute? Because it's fun. Like that's that's the incentive to do it. Most people contribute because it's fun. When you do reviews, um, yeah, I actually don't really know why people contribute reviews. Um, and you got to make the you got to make the incentives right because otherwise you get yeah you know, reviews that are you know just fake reviews. That's right? why and people you, you... review when it's bad because it's like ah oh, I'm gonna put yep. a bad review because I want this place shut down. I don't want other people to waste their money on this place. And that's why the same thing for Amazon, by the way, or the same mm -hmm. thing was like, it's great. This restaurant was amazing. I want people to know about it. I'm going to add or do like, you, or do you, because if you say so, then everybody's going to go there and you're not going to be able to get a table. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> no, but what I've seen do is like individual restaurants. I was at a restaurant with a friend the other day and they were like, if you come back, uh, and you give us a review, the first drink is on us. And so now like that individual restaurant is incentivizing people and they had like a crazy rating by the way. But there's no way Apple can do that at scale. Like now you need to like create an incentive structure as well to, to create that. And I think like that's one of the biggest problems of crowdsourcing mapping and having people do that everywhere is like you need to create an incentive for the quality of the input to be really good yeah not just people put stuff and you need to do it in a way that's going to give you an unbiased result and you know giving you a free drink is going to bias it towards you know yeah but that's in the restaurant's sure. favor and like the restaurant cares exactly. about that it's apple gonna, doesn't it, it, exactly we um we used to talk about this um a little bit when I was at uh, MapQuest and later AOL. When uh, when I was at AOL, we did uh, Digital Cities, which was uh, basically um, a website, digitalcities.com, that helped you figure out what was going on in your city, whether it be places to go visit or events or concerts coming that weekend, stuff like that. And this was a pre... This was pre-Yahoo... Um, um, ratings and reviews. Yahoo did it first, I think. Yelp came a lot later. Um, and we always used to talk about, well, if we did ratings and reviews, what would be a good way to do it? Well, the best time to give a rating or review is probably when you get the check or you get the bill from the restaurant. Right? Like on the spot. So, mean. On the spot. So wouldn't it be cool when you get that paper receipt? This is prior to contactless payments. Um, you could write in, review, write in your rating and that somehow would be captured and make its way back to some central system, and you oh, get a I can good see idea how it's going to go wrong already. Yeah. Yeah. The restaurant's never going to let that happen if it's a bad one. Yeah, they wouldn't, right? They wouldn't. <laughs> um, and also, you know, back in those days of paper receipts and stuff, how how would you get that? How would how would the mechanism work? It it really there wasn't really a good way to make that work, but it's changing now. Um, now, it's probably used more in the U.S. than any other country, but a lot of people use Apple Pay. And if you use Apple Pay, you have something called the uh, Apple Wallet. And within that, you see all of your transactions that you've completed. Um, I don't know what I have, again, pure speculation as to what Apple has planned. But the best place to do that, it would seem to me at least, would be you know, rate your recent transactions that you've made through Apple Pay. And, you know, 
people would idea. do that, right? It's kind of fun to do. It's easy to do. You could make it super easy, um, where it wouldn't be a you know a high friction process, um, and you could say how you know, and and then I think quickly you could get critical mass, and you could start to get some uh, some interesting uh, uh, um, information out of that. And that again, if it was. If it was presented in the right way, and I think a company like Apple could do this, you could do it in such a way where your incentive would be, okay, you'll get be better recommendations. Yeah, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. Like Apple kind of leaning in their history is like, well, your whole life is in here as well. You might as well add this and then we'll, right. we'll give you better recommendations um, based on your specific thing. So help us help you basically exactly yeah. i could exactly. see apple having the critical mask to to be able to do that over a completely new website that's trying to do that on their own yeah yeah i could see that happening i mean there are a lot of websites that are trying to do that and um um you know listen the guys that snap and uh snap maps in particular i think are, are trying really hard on this and i um, Randy Meach runs uh, Snap Maps, and he does a fantastic job at that. And um, you know, I think Snap has a um, has a chance to to do that. Uh, there are other startups that have raised. I I don't know how they've raised the amount of money that they've raised um, to do the same thing. And I'm I'm wondering how they'll succeed. But um, yeah, you're right. You need to have critical mass to to do that in some way. And um, Apple, I, Apple, I think, could do it if they put their minds to it. This is, I, I never put two and two together before, but one of the um, the things that came to mind here is, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Michelin Guide uh, and like Michelin star rated restaurants. Of course. Um, and you probably know the history behind it as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so for like the reason I know about this is because it's I'm French and it's like, it's a very famous story. So Michelin is the is a tire company, uh, and they sell tires. And this has got to be like back in the fifties or sixties. I think it's like post war. People uh, come back from the war. There's uh, basically you really need to recreate the whole, rebuild the whole country. People, there's a huge automotive industry in France. Uh, Renault, Citroën, all those companies. Um, and Michelin wanted to sell more tires. And so how do you sell more tires? Well, you need people to drive more because um, then that adds up the tires. That uses up, wears the tires down, and then you can sell more tires. How do you get people to drive more? Well, you tell them nice, good places uh, all over the country where they can go to. And then they have a reason to go there. This is also kind of Coincidentally, when people start having a few weeks of uh, paid leave in France, post-war. And so that's how the Michelin Guide started. Michelin is a tire company, and they sent people out to just review restaurants and I think hotels, actually. Um, and then give that out to people and say, hey, just go places. Here's a bunch of places that we reviewed for you. You could just go off. And this is where also a lot of there's these... Um, roads that were not highways, those came later, but that connected a lot of the small cities. France is a country that has so many cities like that are very small. So there's a lot of little roads that connect them. And so that was kind of the first 
review that that was like very curated curated approach by the way like that that's why these michelin stars are are so famous now is very very curated um and never put two and two but that is also kind of creating a like giving people a map it's not really on on a map format i don't think there was that much of a map um but it's also creating that like incentive of like this is why we need these really good reviews so we can tell people where they need to go so they'll use up more tires and like That's this right. whole conversation made me think of that. I, I'd never put two and two together as well. That, that's exactly right. And in fact, there is a Michelin road atlas. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm sure there is. Right. And um, the I told you that story about MapQuest.com and its its lineage. And you know, initially it was this company called Geosystems Global Corporation, and they had these three divisions: one that was doing MapQuest, one that was doing custom solutions, kind of mapping solutions, and the other was doing printed cartographic maps. There's a story behind that too. So MapQuest uh, came out of this company, Geosystems. Geosystems came out of a company called R.R. Donnelly. Now, R.R. Donnelly is a company that's been established for many, many, many decades in the United States. And R.R. Donnelly got its start um, with printing phone books, which were massive and had tons of pages. And they also printed uh, uh, the most popular magazine in the U.S. at the time, the TV Guide, which was printed, you know, every week and sent out to millions of people. And they, the story goes that back in the late 60s, they had bought these very expensive four-color presses and they were trying to get more use out of these presses. We need, you know, we paid a lot of money for these, so we need to use them more, so we need to print more stuff. <laughs> and so they went to uh, they went to Shell Gasoline and they said, this is in the, about 1968, I think, they went to Shell Gasoline and they said, hey, Shell, how about we create you some roadmaps? And we'll print them out on our beautiful four-color presses, and you can give them away free at your gas stations as a promotion, at your petrol stations as a promotion, uh, and, and, and use it as a, a way to market your gas stations so people will come to Shell rather than some other guys to get their free maps. And we'll get more use out of our four-color presses. And so that's how a group within Donnelly called Donnelly Cartographic Services got started, which later morphed to Geosystems Global Corporation, which later morphed to MapQuest.com. So if you want to know about MapQuest.com, it actually got its start in 1968, uh, which is a great press. story, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Similar story to the, to the Michelin story. Yeah, but, uh, that's awesome. One of the other things I wanted to talk about is... Uh, Coming back to Apple, but looking ahead as well, uh, one of the very exciting announcements, uh, you know, from Apple recently is this whole branch that they've called spatial computing, and that uh, I've seen various people in the mapping industry kind of raise an eyebrow at that uh, term. But basically, uh, we're talking about the Vision Pro, their um, you know, in quotes, mixed reality headsets. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to know, uh, kind of 
what you think about that. You know, again, being outside of Apple, I just you wrote about it a little bit, um, but I, I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts here on on the podcast. Well, thank you. Yeah, I I think it's fascinating, and uh, of course, the term spatial computing caught my eye. How could it not? Of course, and uh, <laughs> got me thinking about this. And um, I I don't know if you've had the chance to go visit Apple's headquarters um, in Cupertino. If anybody's but listening, if and you wants to do, get me there. <laughs> if you do, um, you won't you won't be able to get into uh, their headquarters unless you're invited by somebody who works there. But right next door to their headquarters, there's an Apple Visitor Center, and within that Visitor Center, it's it's a fun place to go. It's an Apple store, just like any other Apple store, but it sells stuff at that store that you can't get anywhere else in the world, and it shows you stuff at that store that you can't see anywhere else in the world. For example, it sells T-shirts that you can't get anywhere else in the world, blah, 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 blah. But one of the things that they did there, and it's about, I think they did it in 2017, so that's what, six years ago now, they created an AR experience inside the visitor center. And the AR experience was they had this massive steel or aluminum table or aluminum table that is a kind of topographic representation of apple park and the campus there and um so it's just a a piece of molded aluminum which is in the shape of the the buildings on the campus and everything that's there and they give you an ipad and you hold up that ipad in front of this uh in front of this huge table and it does an ar rendering on top of that table of the Apple building. So you can see it at different times of day and you can see different things and you can, um, you know, uh, use the interface on the iPad to show different things like airflow through the building or uh, how the heat has dissipated through the building. And it it was a fascinating and still is a fascinating uh, experience and it's definitely worth seeing. When I saw Vision Pro, I thought, well, you've just unlocked that whole experience now because no longer are you bound by the hardware, in this case, this very expensive table that they made out of aluminum. You could now have that experience uh, right there in front of you uh, using the Vision Pro um, as, as a way to do that. And... It's not just, I mean, if you look at the demos of Vision Pro, a lot of it's about kind of freeing you from the constraints of having a monitor in front of you. Now you can have multiple monitors in front of you and you can make them as big as you want and you can be in your hotel room and you can see the same thing. You can be on an airplane, you can see the same thing and you no longer have to be constrained by those monitors. But if you look at the demos that they did, one of the demos which I thought was really fascinating was the dinosaur demo where they showed the viewers on a big screen, virtual screen in front of you, this this movie of a dinosaur wandering around. And then suddenly the dinosaur comes out of the screen in 3D and, you know, kind of scares the living day- daylights out of you because it's kind of looking at you and sniffing at you. And, and it's that 3D experience, which I think is really fascinating. So now you could have a map with various layers uh, shown in various representations that you could display in front of people and you could 
using hand gestures, pull that map apart or pull those layers apart or interact with those layers and just really experience a map in a way that you have not been able to experience a map um, before. And we haven't seen that yet, but it's going to come. You know, in essence, Max, what I'm talking about is that 3D experience of looking at a map in 3D in front of you with other people around looking at that same map and interacting with that map all together as a collaboration is is going to be fantastic. And I can't wait to see it. I don't know if Esri will do it or Apple will do it or the Maps team will create some great consumer mapping experience with Vision Pro. I hope that they do. Or some other brand new organization is going to come along and do something really exciting. I can see it coming. I don't think it's a question of if. I think it's a question of when. And um, it'll be it'll be fun to see. I want to start rounding it off then. Um, there's one, one question I like asking everybody as well. So I, I like starting and I like finishing the same way. Um, I like asking for a book recommendation and a podcast uh, recommendation. So it doesn't have to be about anything that we talked about. It can be, but it doesn't have to. And the reason I ask is because I think, first of all, books and podcasts are actually pretty hard to... Uh, to discover and there's not like as much recommendations there's a lot of word of mouth and i'm always in the lookout for new things and i find like it's a good way to learn a little bit more in a different way about people so uh, is there maybe a book that you've read recently that you think would be worth uh, people checking out and the same way for a podcast if you listen to any so books yeah books i have a book that i could recommend to anybody Please and do. uh it's um it's a book that applies to to any industry and it applies in particular to startups and young companies. Um, it's written by a fellow Apple alumni. His name is Tony Fidel. And Tony is famous for really inventing iPod. Uh, later on, he left Apple and went to start a company called Nest that invented the smart thermostats and course sold that to google uh tony wrote a book recently and he wrote a book recently because he was always being asked these questions about what do i do i've got this company and i'm at this stage and i don't know what to do and how do i do this and so he was forever being asked these questions and so he wrote a book called build and build is a book about how to build a company and what to expect at the various inflection points as you're building that company and I've recommended this book to um, many organizations I've talked to, particularly the young startup organizations uh, that, I, that I've talked to and work with. And it's just a fantastic book to learn what to expect and how to deal with situations as you're growing that company and going through the various inflection points of, of, of that growth. It's a really easy read. You can use it as a reference. You don't have to read the whole book. You can pick a chapter that applies to your stage or the stage that you're at with your particular company um, and um, and come back and look at it at you know, different stages that you get to with, within your company's growth. So Build is a book that I've read and you know it's a for me it was a page turner and um, and I've organizations I've recommended to love it too. So couldn't recommend it enough. Really good read. As far as podcasts go, 
I don't know, Max. I'm still looking for a podcast to beat uh, Minds Behind Maps. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, th- there's there's a lot of pub. Listen, there's a lot of podcasts around. I think um, you know we're awash with podcasts, particularly since the pandemic. Um, Tell me about create it. Create a lot of podcasts, right? You you probably I think you created yep. Minds Behind Maps during the pandemic, so um, you're you're one of them. Um, I think there's a need for for the deep podcasts that you can listen to when you're on a long journey uh, or you're on a long commute. Um, but I think there's also a need for for those podcasts that are kind of short and sweet. Um, one of the people I follow uh, closely is a guy called John Gruber. John Gruber is probably the f- most famous guy to blog about all things Apple. He writes about other stuff too. He's got a um, he's got a blog that has been around for over twenty years now called Daring Fireball, and um, Daring Fireball is a great blog. I've really enjoyed it. Um, he's done that for many years, but he's also got started in podcasting. He has one called Dithering, um, which he's done. It's it's a fifteen minute episode. Every episode is fifteen minutes, and I think there's a need for for more podcasts like Dithering, which are kind of TED yeah. format, you know, like TED Talks, which are kind of short and sweet and to the point. Um, and um, I'd, lo- I'd love to see more of those. Not not that I am dissing the, the longer podcasts, you know, like, like uh, I'm, I guess Lex Friedman is one of the most famous tech podcasters. He does a podcast... And his podcasts are two or three hours, I think, and and those are great. But you know, you don't always have time for them. So um, um, I think I think there's a need for that. Yeah, no, thank you for those. Um, yeah, we didn't get to get too much into some of the writing that you've been uh, doing recently, but I feel like we actually indirectly talked about a lot of it on through a lot of the t- subjects that we uh, talked about. Um, I will have. Of course, links to uh, your um, blog map happenings uh, in the show notes, um, as well as like a bunch of things that we talked about. I'm gonna go try to dig some of the things that we talked about, like the the announcement of Apple Maps. I'm gonna see if I can find that. Probably not too hard. Yeah, you should. And yeah, um, map happenings. It's been around for about a year now. It's just turned its one year anniversary. Um, the the blog is really meant to generate conversations and be um you know kind of a fun read but also irreverent at the same time so i kind of poke fun at people and organizations uh including the french by the way i have yeah, nothing I, against the french i noticed but, i noticed <laughs> uh, but uh you know I, hey listen i'm i'm a quarter french myself so um um i feel like i i can get away with it a little bit given that i'm a quarter french but um, it's, 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 um, uh, like I said, map happenings, it's a, it's a fun read. Um, the, the tagline I like to think is a reverent, but fair. And, um, so, uh, that apply I to think the French if you do, as well. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, if you haven't checked out map happenings, I'd, I'd love for your listeners to check it out. It's, uh, it's something I enjoy writing. It's something that, you know, I think when you do things like I'm sure for yourself, the reason you do 
uh, Minds Behind Maps is it's because it's something you would want to listen to, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, and and I think I do map happenings for the same reason. It's something I, you know, it's articles that I would want to read. So yeah, I think if people are, are maybe starting uh, looking for something to start, I think sometimes it's a bit daunting. There's you have this series about the history of mapping that's uh, ongoing at the time we record this. I, I would recommend people go check uh, that out as well. I'll put a link to those. James, thanks so much for your time. This was such a great and fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Max, thank you for inviting me. It's been a huge pleasure and honor to be here and um, keep up the good work. And uh, I uh, can't wait to see who who else you're getting on the podcast. It'll be uh, fun to see. Thank you.